Hello, and welcome to The Mummer's Farce, the podcast about the visual production of HBO's Game of Thrones. I'm Kate Berry. I'm Dan Solberg. And today we'll be talking about Season 2, Episodes 5 and 6, The Ghost of Harrenhal, directed by David Petrarca, and The Old Gods and the New, directed by David Nutter. I hear, Dan, you saw some news today that has to do with our second director. Right. So this is the first time we'll be seeing a directed uh, an episode directed by David Nutter, and he is one of the three, I guess, slash four directors who have been cited for season eight Woo! direction. So David Nutter, also Miguel Sapochnik, who I think we have not seen one from him quite yet. No, not yet. Both of these directors are directors who have helmed Emmy Award winning episodes. So Reigns of Castamere uh, being one of those episodes and uh, Heart Home, I want to say, was the other one. I can't remember what the other one was. but I, th- I think so. Miguel Sapochnik has done some of the some big finale episodes. He did the season six, nine, and ten. So Battle of the Bastards and uh, the Winds of Winter episodes. So the two kind of big episodes from that season. And Nutter, we will see him along the along the way with some of these other seasons too and the other director is directors the wb unclear if one or the other will direct or if they'll do we don't know how many episodes are going to be directing each either it's going to be six total in the season each episode is predicted to be a full length movie 90 minutes at least long so budgets inflating to like people will anticipate somewhere in the vicinity of like 15 million per episode um <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lot. Yeah. Which is a lot. So, yeah. If um, I could whistle, I would have. <laughs> so we are going to see what David Nutter is all about here when we get to episode six. And then the other news, mm-hmm. uh, which will become relevant when we talk about episode six, is that Kit Harrington and is it Rose Leslie or Leslie Rose? Re- Rose Leslie. Yeah. And, and they're engaged. Who is Egrets. Yeah. So Who, yeah. congratulations. And we will be meeting them together as a couple here in episode six yeah. so seems uh you know we don't like to indulge in celebrity news too much but i think it's appropriate yeah. for this instance here and i'll really anytime <laughs> yeah also it's a, it's a good couple yeah all right do you want to give us a rundown of episode five sure thing so this is the ghost of harrenhal okay first so first of all um we have the conclusion to what was the birth of the demon baby slash demon man um demon stannis shadow uh from last episode and renly is murdered by a shadow with the face of stannis baratheon little finger allies with the tyrells stannis takes the camp eventually and, and going along with some of davos's protests says that he will not bring melisandre into the final battle at the red keep theon boards his ship and gets some bad ideas about what he wants to do here John and company arrive at the Fist of the First Men and eventually volunteers to range off in a sort of a stealth small party of rangers with Corrin Halfhand, who they meet up with there as well. Tyrion meets with the Pyromancer and increases the production of wildfire in preparation for the battle with Stannis. Brienne swears an oath of allegiance to Catelyn Stark. And meanwhile up north, Bran has a dream about the ocean overtaking Winterfell. Zarozo and Doxus shows Daenerys his vault after she wears the dress that he gave her and then later on Daenerys guards herself against some of Jorah's she tries to keep it professional around Jorah. Tywin scolds his war council at Harrenhal and Arya is uh, Tywin's cupbearer now and she meets with Jockin 
around the castle grounds. Jockin says, let me grant you three wishes here. Three people you want dead because you saved me and the two companions who were in the cage. And she names her first kill, which is the tickler, the, the character who was torturing everybody as part of the interrogations. So that's that's where we end with the death of the tickler there and, and Arya being somewhat proud of herself for that one. Yeah. Yeah, his head got twisted right around. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> rough one. Yeah. So we do start in, in Renly's camp here. And I don't know, the thing that sort of struck me about this, because the CG in the show has come a long way. I think that the shadow Stannis looks pretty good. There is an instance where Renly actually gets stabbed and there's like CG blood that I think looks rough in the way that CG blood always looks kind of rough. Yeah. So that's not so great. And I don't know, there was there was a staging to this that I, I feel like, uh, I'm curious what you think, but felt like it was either somewhat contrived or meant to be just kind of ominous. Like that maybe we knew that something was coming, that there was going to be some kind of connection here between the conclusion of last episode and this one and it just felt like the where Renly was choosing to stand was like there's a lot of room here for something to come in he's also looking in the mirror which felt a little horror movie that mm-hmm. like you've got someone coming out of the shower and they drop their comb and look back up and oh my god there's a there's someone with a knife behind them and it felt like that his tension is diverted he's mm-hmm. looking in the mirror Brienne is helping him take off his cloak I guess yeah. and then the the shadow comes up and stabs him through the back and through the heart. So yeah, I thought that was contrived. The other thing, they were really emphasizing Brienne's height in this. Mm-hmm. The camera's very low and making Gwen- uh, Gwendolyn Christie look, I mean, she's very tall, but making mm-hmm. her look much taller, almost to the detriment of the scene, I think, because mm-hmm. in some of the shots, it's being shot so looking so high up that you can't see Renly's body. Mm-hmm. even. And so that was a little strange. Unless, I mean... She's the focus, and so yeah. maybe that the camera just moved on very quickly from Renly. I mean, it's 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 interesting. She's she's a giantess in in all the best ways, but it was a little strange that he had just been killed and he's cut out of the shots. Almost all of them. Yeah, it seemed like they had used that shot a couple times prior. Maybe they just liked the way that that the fabrics were gathering in the top of that tent because it does kind of make this sort of hole that sucks. I don't know. Maybe they just like the look of it. I don't know. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> It's very, yeah, yes, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I guess I'm just going to say it, especially with the color of the fabrics. It looks a little bit like an anus, don't you think? It could be. I don't know. I mean, I see it, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that I get the symbolism here. No, I don't I don't either. But Stannis it is, is an asshole. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, but you've got the, the tent, and then you've got this towering Brienne, but then you sort of cut most of Renly from the shot, especially when he's fallen to the ground. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of weird. Yeah, I, I in watching this because this is the end of the the character of Renly being in the show anymore. I don't know. What did you think of Renly? Because I, I, seeing this again, I feel like the first time around I was a little bit more rooting for Renly, and this time I don't know. I found the performance to be like I don't know, a little stilted or a little sort of just kind of stage play kind of like I'm getting into my positions, I'm saying my lines, but not a whole lot of like, I'm really invested in this character. This this really feels like a really well-developed character. I agree. Um, I think I think that's true. And I don't know if it just means that as the seasons went on, the show was taken more seriously. And mm-hmm. so the caliber of actor got better. Although, I mean, certainly some of the, the characters that we were introduced to at the beginning 
have remained good mm-hmm. and gotten, I even think someone like Amelia Clark has probably gotten better. Luckily, I guess it's that Stannis survives because Stannis throughout the seasons, I think, really stands out as a good performance. Yeah. But yeah, on a second viewing, Renly, other than I, I felt like I saw him more as an extension of Robert, just mm-hmm. like a younger, friendlier Robert. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was a great acting job. Yeah, I, I think especially compared to somebody like Stannis, who then like enters into the tent later in the episode after he's kind of taken over and everybody else is more or less cleared out. And some of just the really subtle ticks that he has, like the way that they, I mean, it's partially how they frame him too. Like he just, he won't look Davos in the, in the eye. Mm-hmm. All these shots are like essentially of him like from behind his head turned just so we can get like half of his face but he's essentially got his back to the camera his back to davos the whole time and i he just has a really great way of like blending you can see the inner conflict going on in his mind where like he's not happy about what he's done like he's he feels like that was what had to happen Mm -hmm. and what is right to have happened it ends justify the means sort of thing but like he's not happy about it and he's very sort of that internal that internal conflict shows on his face and they even linger on him after Davos has left the tent of Mm -hmm. him just sort of sitting there still and thinking about his current situation. Yeah, I I thought that this was a theme throughout this episode and also the next, the sort of corruption or temptation of characters. You've got Stannis either, I mean, he's he's more than tempted. He's used sort of Mm -hmm. um, unforgivable means to get what he wants, right? So he's maybe corrupted, but I feel like Marjorie's being corrupted by, or tempted by Littlefinger. Daenerys might be being tempted by Zarazen and Daxos. Theon is being tempted by his first mate to do, to do perhaps horrible things. Mm-hmm. This seems to be something that's like a real turning here that people are starting to think, or even, even Tyrion in this episode, who is asking now the pyromancers to make wildfire for him, that maybe people deciding to do some pretty horrible things or going to horrible lengths. Yeah. Anyway, um, that was a skip ahead, no, no, but no. I think we'll, we'll get we'll get there, but you know, the last thing I was thinking with that with before we leave Renly is like he did have that the mirror is like this loaded symbol and it can be a little cliché at times. But when after after the the murder happens, there's a scuffle with Brienne and two of his other guards that, that rush into the tent. She ends up slaying them. The mirror gets shattered in the in the midst of that and i i felt like that i mean one it shows sort of like Brienne's world is crumbling and i I don't know that i have worked out entirely what i think the mirror means here but i feel like it's got to be something yeah i mean also that was kind of like the mirror was our viewpoint in seeing the murder happen so the whole thing of Brienne's sort of testimony that will be going on through the rest of the the series Mm -hmm. is it was a shadow with the face of stannis baratheon Nobody else has this, I mean, we do as the audience, but nobody else in the show has that context, not even Catelyn. They have this conversation later. I don't remember which episode it was in. I but, think it's this one. And Catelyn says, like, I only saw a shadow of a man. I, I don't know who it was. And she's adamant it yeah. was the face of Stannis. And, like, it's that mirror view. And I kind of feel like, if anything, maybe the shattering of the mirror is, like, the erasure of any kind of physical evidence. Even though, obviously, literally, the yeah. mirror wasn't going to retain the image, but, like... I don't know, maybe symbolically of that. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the maybe the thing that bothers her the most. Not only did she fail to protect Renly, but the story is that she's the one who killed him. Mm-hmm. And and the people closest to uh, him and her don't believe it. Loras says, you you don't believe that yeah. Brienne did that when Marjorie says that she did. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to supply another answer. Yeah. 
man, medieval justice. Like, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to to try and claim innocence in that kind of an environment when there's like, there is there's so little you can do in terms of physical evidence in your support. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that both Catelyn tells Brienne and then Marjorie tells Renly, or excuse me, Marjorie tells Loras that you can't avenge Renly if you're mm-hmm. dead. And so, I don't know, I think we see so much revenge in this show, but that's, I don't know that it's a good reason, but the mm-hmm. idea that you can't you can't hurt the people who hurt the people you love, sorry, yeah. that was a clumsy way of saying it, in, if you're dead. So you have to survive in order to get revenge. Mm-hmm. And this was another, that conversation with Renly lying dead on the plank and Loris and Marjorie and Littlefinger in that same room was kind of an, an echo of a scene we had previously where Littlefinger was sort of like, it feels like he's kind of just feeling out like, what are these Tyrells all about? And he, Loris, he talks about revenge. He says like, I find that that's the purest of motivations. And that's essentially like Littlefinger saying like, okay, I got you pinned down. Mm-hmm. That's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to go for revenge. I don't even have to think about this. This yeah. is done. Or provide anything. Yeah. But then Marjorie is where he sort of sees uh, more of an opportunity there. And Marjorie sees opportunity and stuff. Also, she's wearing her kind of cup-shaped cool dress that we were talking about last yeah. time. Yeah. So it makes it... I, I thought it showed up again. Yeah. It is, so. Yeah. Well, if I had that dress, I'd wear it every day. So <laughs> it's sort of amazing that she even tells that to Littlefinger. I think mm-hmm. she, she... He says, do you want to be a queen? And she says, no, I want to be the queen. <laughs> it's kind of amazing that she's that frank with him. Uh-huh. Because she seems... I mean, maybe she's taking a, a a good risk with him that that they have at least for a while that in common. But I don't think I would I would tell Littlefinger my actual desires. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's either her being a bit uh, ignorant of the situation or her being crafty and sort of like I know what Littlefinger can like do for me, and so I'm going to lay this information out there ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. But the in King's Landing, the current queen, Cersei, I, I, it made me think of our uh, last podcast talking about Sansa being a little bird, especially mm-hmm. in a, gold, a gilded cage. You actually have Cersei looking out of this very elaborate wooden lattice cut out mm-hmm. box at her at her daughter who's playing in the in the courtyard. But Cersei does look like a bird caught in a mm-hmm. in a cage, um, and she's drunk and she's upset, but she's also. To, like in a very claustrophobic beautiful space mm-hmm. but still tiny and yeah. confining and so i thought that i actually really liked that shot yeah there, it's it's a it's kind of a shot reverse shot I, I took screenshots of both of those I'm like oh this is very uh interesting kind of juxtaposition here because yeah marjorie is kind of in the, or not marjorie uh, marcella is kind of in a cage down there but cersei very literally like with her fingers kind of going through some of the holes like reaching to get out yeah she's trapped in there yeah. But all, like also along those lines, though, Tyrion finds himself in a cage box of yeah. sorts later with Lancel. I mean, and you could you could read that as like Lancel is in the cage, but I don't know. It's like Tyrion's being forced into corners as well, and so like he's having to kind of get boxed in literally in these kind of situations as well. You know, he's under I think different pressures. Like it's different factors that put Tyrion in the box than Cersei in her cage, mm-hmm. but. They both end up in these confines. Yeah, yeah. So I think even the wealthiest, po- most powerful characters, I, I really, f- they felt trapped in this mm-hmm. episode, which was, I think, interesting because that's maybe emphasizing the feeling that they are that they are outnumbered and outmaneuvered by Stannis. Mm-hmm. Um, that this it's closing in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there's the yeah, right because it it's an impending 
this last sort of half of the season is all about the impending battle and sort mm-hmm. of the preparations and the tension um, and the anxiety that goes along with that. And you also see a lot more of King's Landing mm-hmm. than we ever have before. There's a lot of walk and talk shots uh, with Bronn and, and yeah. Tyrion and some other people walking through and seeing how close together everything is and the pretty poor conditions that people mm-hmm. are living in. So I think just to give us a sense of how how populated King's Landing is, but then also like everyone's just sort of living on top of each other and mm-hmm. there's not a, it's, it would be easy to burn down, I think is the fear, especially yeah. when Tyrion goes to the Pyromancer. Right. Yeah, it's what, yeah, Bronn ends up mentioning that later too, sort of like, this is, he goes to visit the Pyromancer and Bronn essentially says, men win wars, not magic tricks, which in some ways, you know, it definitely relates to all that stuff we are just talking about with the populace in King's Landing and how liable thing, how likely it is that things will go wrong mm-hmm. um, and that they'll end up tor- torching their own city. But I also thought that that was in a relation to Stannis, right? Stannis with this big magic trick to take out Renly. It's like, oh, well, that's not going to win it, right? It's going to be the, the men fighting the war and ultimately Tywin and Loras and company sweeping in that are going to yeah. clinch victory for them. Yeah, although... Do dragons win wars? Mm, Does uh, rising from the dead? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but I think I think you're right that that's it's. He's not just that's not meant just to talk about wildfire, but also mm-hmm. demon babies. <laughs> also, the pyromancer is Roy Detrice, is the actor who plays oh. him, which you might know as the reader or slash performer of all of the Game of Thrones series mm-hmm. audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Very uh, esteemed English actor and was originally supposed to be cast as Pycelle, but due to some health issues, was not able to commit to that role at that time, and so they were happy to bring him on as the the pyromancer. We haven't seen him again, unfortunately. I think Roy Detrice is still doing okay. (laughs) I hope so. He's like 90-something years old and like a World War II POW survivor, so he's got a life. Yeah, interesting. So cool that that he got to show up, though, especially... As somebody like I was introduced to the books primarily through the audiobooks originally, so he was uh, he was my introduction. He plays all the characters. He like does voices for each character in in uh, when he reads the books too. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that was him. <laughs> I liked the the fact that he wasn't wearing um, like a maester's chain, mm-hmm. but instead had little vials of like who knows what sort of chemicals around his neck, which makes him seem a little dis. dis- disreputable Dispu- mm. how do you say disreputable that? thank you um because i mean not that not that the maesters are always doing the right thing but i feel like i noticed that he he's has a different sort of training well he's like part of this some sort of order right but it's not like the one official order that has like the science behind it it's like kind of like i mean it's alchemy right and so mm-hmm. it's kind of a little bit of like sorcery like more so than the alchemists maybe or sorry than the maesters maybe feel a little bit more like scientists in the books, there's a lot of instances of people kind of like Kyburn or something like that. It's like these half maesters yeah. of like, we, we kind of like know some stuff, but like we're not part of the official group. And uh, Even Oberyn is supposed yeah. to have gotten a couple chains mm-hmm. um, or links of his chain. But... So, yeah, I feel like the, the alchemists kind of fit into that as well. Sort of like this kind of leftover of like Targaryen eccentricity. Well, he even says like you would never have insulted my order mm-hmm. if King Eris was still alive and you're, and I, that's sort of an interesting that they've been allowed to exist mm-hmm. and and continue to make their wildfire even though a lot of the Targaryen stuff got totally destroyed yeah. I don't know that makes they seem sneaky and untrustworthy right 
I think chronologically we're in Pike. Um, yeah, we can go to we can do Pike. Not too much here. No, just baby Theon getting pushed around by everybody. Yeah, people are kind of mean to him. I mean, like no, he deserves it. He's. He, <laughs> I mean, he always is going to everything that's going to happen for like. I guess the rest of the series up until where we are right now is he has it coming based on the stuff that he does right Soon. now. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. So he's on this ship called the Sea Bitch. He gets the worst crew, uh-huh. and one of the guys whom he's he's ordering around, he says, "I've been reaving and raping," <laughs> and then he gets a little bit uh, uh, cruder, but he basically since before you were born, mm-hmm. and it was just so f- I don't know. It's funny to hear someone. It's his job, the way that he talks yeah. about it. I guess it it's... I don't know that it's great dialogue, but it certainly gives you a sense of what Iron Islanders are like. Yeah, the Iron Islanders are... They're really the worst people that you could imagine. Yeah. Like, they're just pirates, and they're, like... They're so proud of the fact that they, like... That they just take things, that yeah. they don't, like, make or grow things themselves, but they're just like, oh, that's what we do. It's who we are. We're good at it. It's like, yeah, well... We're really You're good. A bunch of degenerates. Like. Yeah, we're really good rapists. That's yeah. how we've, yeah. And then his, I don't know, his first mate. I couldn't. Re- is Dagmar. Dagmar. Dagmar Cleft. I know that because he's he's a, he's a character see. from the books. So it's kind of isn't Dagmar a woman's name? I don't know. I thought I think it's I think it's a German woman's name. Hmm. So it's a little funny that <laughs> he got whatever. But yeah, I guess he's he's the only one who's offered who's willing to sort of believe in Theon, but he also pushes him to do some of the worst things, as that becomes more obvious in the in the next episode yeah. that we'll talk about. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Yara is the coolest, and Theon is the droolest. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, Yara's going to follow orders. Theon's going to try and uh, make up some some sort of plan for himself. Yeah. I think after that, we're in Harrenhal. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of, like, drawing up the plans. Yeah. Here we go. We've got Tywin, Tywin and his war council. We get to see Arya actually being the cupbearer. We just had that role assigned last time. We didn't actually get to see any of that start. And we get the start of what is kind of a really interesting and somewhat short-lived, though, unfortunately, like, relationship between Tywin and Arya. Yeah. Really cool dynamic. And this is our, after Yorin now, this is the second older, gruff dude that is going to be partnered with Arya. You're here. forgetting Sirio Farrell. Well, uh, he's, he's a little bit of a different category. I, I guess. <laughs> but but yeah, she, she gets paired with some of the best male characters. Mm-hmm. And she gets to do this like duo that, yeah. I mean, she so much so that when she was on more on her own this most recent season, it didn't, didn't no. go as well. No. <laughs> she needs like an older gruff counterpart. Yeah, a foil. Yeah. A lot of tight close-ups, uh, especially the eyes. You've got... A lot of focus of them trying to figure each other out. Although Arya is already pretty good at the game of lies or whatever it was, yeah. because she's able to fool, sort of fool Tywin into thinking. She first at least tries to fool him that she's from the Riverlands. He sees through that, but then mm-hmm. she's able to obscure where she's really from. And there's this shot, reverse shot into each other's faces that works really well to build the tension yeah and they they've got and i think in both of these episodes they've got a nice shot of tywin sort of like face half lit with this like cold blue light and he's got these like gleaming i don't know if they're blue or green eyes but these like Mm -hmm. really icy eyes at least they look very blue in the with when they're lit this way and just like staring and just like very like he's like he he's like piercing but he like can't quite either he can't quite put it together like who aria is or it's just 
Arya is so kind of below him that it's she avoids it somehow. But it's he's got a scary look. It's very he's an intimidating presence. Yeah, and he scares everyone mm-hmm. and his table certainly. He's it seems really clear, especially in the next episode, that he is surrounded by incompetence. Yeah. So I, I had a couple things about Jockin here. Yeah. So, one, he says the line, only death can pay for life. I had that too. reference to, uh, I don't know, reference, the same line that Mira Mazdur uh, says to Danny last season mm-hmm. uh, about starting, trying to save Khal Drogo. Uh, and then he makes references to the Red God. And I wonder if this is an inconsistency here with the show. Like... The Red God is separate from the Many-Faced God. The yeah. Many-Faced God would then, in sense, include the Red God in there somewhere because it's like all these gods of death put together. But I don't know. I feel like this is actually a point of confusion here. Yeah, maybe they thought it sounded more dramatic yeah. to say the Red... Because the Red God rather than the Many-Faced God. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But it does seem to connect him to... Melisandra and yeah. sort of Danny's like fire camp more like kind of dark magic. Yeah, and I mean certainly the many faced god and the House of Black and White is dark, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have at least as far as we know it doesn't have an agenda besides just like death. Right, right. That's their main deal in in the books. When Arya finally does get to Bravos, she even passes like, oh, here's the Red God's temple. Like here's the Red Priests over here, mm-hmm. and it's that's not the House of Black and White. Like that that is a separate thing where they like burn these night fires and then. She goes to this other house. Do you think it's possible that Jacken is playing a character who mm-hmm. worships the Red God? It's, like, I, it, it's just possible, yeah, because he does. But if he's that whoever who's ever Jacken's face is, that that's part of his persona that I he's adopted. That. Yeah, I don't. I don't know, but yeah. you're, you're right that it's like that's not. You don't really serve that God, Jacken, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Yeah, I found I found it a little a little confusing, or maybe potentially a little inconsistent. Yeah. Well. I would believe either. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Daenerys. Yeah. Her kind of plot here, which not that much happens with her this episode. No, there was just a couple things that I noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, one, talking about inc- inconsistencies and con- like complicated connections maybe between characters, Quaith comes in mm-hmm. and says, I am no one, which again, and again, sort of like using a phrase that will become very important to another set of people yeah. from whom I think she's totally separate. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised that they, again, maybe an inconsistency that if they were going to rewrite that, she they might not have had her say, I'm no one. And we don't really get any more of Quaith as the seasons go on, right? I don't, I think, does she come back this season? I think I so. I think so. I think she at least actually talks to Daenerys. Yeah. But then after that, we totally lose her as far as I remember. I think she's just more like of this weird enigma in the show i don't think and i don't even think she delivers like these like the prophecy all this like in this book it's just like all these like really like enticing phrases like well what does that mean what is that you know i don't even remember which ones they were but they do give her a cool mask yeah in the show i like the way that they look i do kind of wish the uh it's got these kind of uh, hexagonal shapes and then she has her dresser actually I i don't know what the bottom of it looks like but I actually thought that, thought that was a weird mismatch of materials, actually. She's got huh. this kind of metal mask and then this just fabric-y top on. And it's like, oh, I don't know if I... You would I have had it be know. more consistent. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a clashy, I think, in terms of material. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish I wish that they had revisited Quaith because I think she's super interesting. But the whole scene at, at Zarzana Daxos sort of made me laugh. So they make a big deal about this dress that he mm-hmm. gives her, right? Yeah. 
And she decides to wear it because it would be rude if she didn't. And Mm -hmm. she's trying to maybe give up some of this Dothraki identity that she's adopted. But when you see the party, there are two other women wearing the exact same dress, (laughs) which I think is actually maybe not an accident. Yeah. Because we know that Zaro's Anaduxus is a fake, right? And so I actually think it was really fitting that there's like this beautiful dress but then there's two other women yeah, wearing the same thing. Because, like, how many other women has he given this dress? Or is this just, like, a dress that you could pick up anywhere mm-hmm. in Karth? So I actually, I liked that as as a sort of uh, hint that that this is, that he's not on the up and up. Yeah, he's a serial philanderer. And here's, you know, all these other yeah. sort of subjects he's trying to exploit. The other thing I noticed was there's a ton of peacocks everywhere. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that in the first season, we talked about Jorah having mm-hmm. the peacock feathers. And I wonder if it's, like, a, a designer symbol like a set designer symbol for um, fakery or something not to be trusted that like the peacock is I mean I don't also like we were talking about the the peacock sort of eyes in the feathers I think those serve a purpose to distract predators that they might be confused about where the eye is and so I I do think that there might be a hint that if there's peacocks around that this is that something is wrong. That's that like it's just someone's trying to distract your attention. Some kind of facade. Being yeah. Put up. Yeah. So that's at least my visual theory for peacocks in Game of Thrones. <laughs> There's also a really fun shot of I don't know is it Eri or Jiqui who's in this episode who ends up biting it next time. I can't. I remember. think. I think it's eerie, but I, don't I think know it is that too. For sure. I think it is too. Um, I I forgot to look at the credits. I know it's not Doria. Dorea, um, she's the one who's like helping Daenerys uh, feed the dragon. Mm-hmm. Is too preoccupied and is kind of persuading Danny to put on the Carthine dress. But she does uh, when Doria is like going off about like, oh, look how beautiful this dress is, and like you should you should play with this, and like, oh, the dragons really like you, and she just goes this great like eye roll like. Oh, come on. This... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, because yeah. she's the one trying to push for all the, the traditional Dothraki things. And she's mended uh, yeah. Daenerys' uh, Dothraki garments and sort of fixed them up nicely and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And she still holds to the, like, she mentions Khal Drogo. And mm-hmm. she's the one who, like, does the Dothraki. I, I can't remember. He, may he ride forever in the Nightlands or something, right? Yes. That they, the, 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 the mantra. Right. This, what, you, what you say when you mention someone who's died Mm -hmm. yeah so i think i don't know that's it doesn't take a lot but i like that it shows that divide between Mm -hmm. dorea who's one she's not dothraki right she was bought from a pleasure house in Mm -hmm. lease or whatever and then and then the like true dothraki like trying to stay stay to her roots Mm -hmm. uh well i don't know what do you have anything else for this episode even like uh yeah the only thing there's uh brienne pledges her i don't know her sword, her sword yeah. uh, to Catelyn. And there's this line that she says that has always bothered me, that she's like, you have a courage, maybe not a battle, a man's courage or a battle courage, but like a woman's courage. And that's always bothered me because I'm like, Bran, you are a woman. <laughs> and I, I mean, I understand internalized misogyny, uh-huh. but it's always, it's always bothered me. Also, because Catelyn is the worst. And I mean, mm. maybe she's courageous. She's got other flaws, but that I just, it, it bothers me that, Brienne would say that when she's often the the butt of sexist jokes and yeah. and being underestimated, and then here she says that is is yeah not excellent. I I guess I kind of like it as like a character moment for Brienne though that she would like that that would be her perspective on the matter. Like mm-hmm. she's so disconnected from anything like femme yeah. that like she doesn't even know she doesn't know how to process it. Like yeah. oh you're a mother like I don't even 
Well, her and she says that her mother yeah. died, and mm-hmm. and we can imagine that young Brienne probably had very few female friends, and mm-hmm. so it, it makes sense. But it's always bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a regressive thing to say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like a sort of woman's courage. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, cool. Something I have no familiarity with whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't all right, know. pledge your stupid sword. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. We moved all around. Yeah, everywhere. And the next episode is going to be more of that yeah um in fact we didn't we didn't see rob this time we're gonna see rob next time it's like even additional yeah it gets even bigger and most of it just keeps going so i'll i'll do a quick recap um the show opens with theon and his crew taking over winterfell they force bran to give it over and behead sir roderick beyond the wall john and egret meet and he can't kill her because she's too pretty and so they spend the night angrily spooning at King's Landing, the court sends Marcella off to Dorne and are attacked by hungry commoners. The High Septon is killed by dismemberment, and Sansa is nearly raped. The Hound saves her. Tywin learns that Arya can read, and Jack and Hagar gets his second victim. Catelyn returns to Rob's camp, and they are informed of Theon's treason. Roose Bolton offers his son's services to take back Winterfell. In Carth, the Spice King refuses to help Daenerys, and when she and Zarazan and Daxos return home, her guard is slain, and her dragons are missing. Mm. And that's it. So this is our David Nutter debut. Yeah. Do you, what, do you have any initial impressions? Like, th- thinking about, like, the style of this compared to, like, the last couple of directors we've had, did you notice anything different about it, or? Well, I really I really like the opening with Theon and Bran. Mm-hmm. I, I will, when we get to it, I'll talk about the scene where Egret is running from Jon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that took so much work. I don't know that it looks as cool as they think it does. <laughs> but I can imagine running on the glaciers and stuff. That probably was so hard to shoot. It yeah. just... I don't know. It wasn't a great chase scene. <laughs> um, the the way that the... I think that the crowd, the angry mob, that was shot very well. So yeah, I think, I think a pretty well-done episode, mm-hmm. generally. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, you know, I thought that some of the our previous director, David Petrarca, I thought some of his stuff was relatively workmanlike. Thinking in comparison, back when we had that the episode three, Alex Sakharov, the more I thought about that one, the more I thought there was actually some inter- really interesting visual stuff, mm-hmm. which I think is because he's a cinematographer. So that I'm kind sense. of really excited to see him come back in, a, in some future seasons. I know he directs at least two more episodes and see how that goes. Up. Yeah, but David Nutter, I thought, like, I, I saw a lot in common with, his work to the David Petrarca episodes, mainly because there's just so much plot, so many uh, different locations to get through. Like, wow, that's a that's a that's a huge sort of uh, task to undertake, and then to have like an artistic sensibility on top of that. Like, I I can't ima- I can't imagine you having too much of like a uh, overarching kind of vision for something when there's just so much information to get across. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it was well done, but not necessarily like something that like stood out visually in any particular way. The action scenes, I guess, that sort of ramped up this one compared to some previous episodes, though. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of tensions sort of bubble over in this mm-hmm. one in a couple places, and I think those are well done. Uh, so it starts off in the sacking of Winterfell. The thing that I really liked about this was, so Theon bursts in while Bran is sleeping. Bran, one, because Theon is a familiar face, and also because Bran's a little kid. He's, like, sort mm-hmm. of rubbing his eyes, and he doesn't understand. And so... The way that Theon is both demanding, but also instructing. Mm-hmm. He's like, you have to give it over to me. And Bran's like, I won't. And then he sits down. He's like, Bran, you have to do this. This yeah. is how you keep people safe. And it's it's manipulative, but it's also not wrong. Mm-hmm. And like 
Bran is listening and realizes that that is what he has to do if he wants to keep people safe. Yeah. And so I just, I, th- I thought it was a really great exchange between them and that, that Theon in particular is is doing a terrible thing, mm. but is also trying to make sure that Bran does the, you know, like... Trying to protect yes, him. Yes, you know. And so I, I thought that was, it was good. And then, and then of course, he loses total control of the situation. But at the, at the beginning, when it's just him, yeah. he's handling it as humanely as he can. He still seems to think... Like, I can do this for my dad, and no one has to get hurt. Right. Yeah, because he, he even, when uh, he starts kind of beating up one of the other people in the yard later, Bran exclaims, like, you said there would be, nobody would be hurt, or there'd be no bloodshed, or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I This, uh, starting from there, and then the what proceeds to happen when Sir Roderick is dragged back in, like, Theon and Alfie Allen's performance here, I just thought, like, is like a plus like this like descent into like i have lost control i am going forward with this and like the you can see like a vacancy develop in the looks that he starts giving particularly after he does the beheading of roderick yeah and he's just like he starts like looks around in like this almost like frenzy like he's he's like it feels like he's having like an out of body experience or something yeah. like that. And you've got this good where like his his first mate Dagmar is the devil on his shoulder and and Maester Lewin keeps coming up and trying to, you know, persuade the the mm-hmm. better parts of his nature and and it just it doesn't work out. And then uh Sir Roderick sums it up where he says, "What is it? God's forgive you, Theon, now yeah. you're truly lost." Mm-hmm. And there is you see it, the light goes out, yeah. right? And then he does a literal hack job mm-hmm. of the beheading yeah. because he it takes a couple swings, and even then, he has to like kick it, kick the head yeah, off at the right. end. It's he's really bad at it. Yeah, he he doesn't he doesn't have the sort of fortitude for it, and uh, they also when essentially when the sentence starts to be handed out, they're like, "This is what's going to happen." It starts pouring, mm-hmm. uh, very Hollywood rain, but like he's getting drenched, and it's. In some ways, it is Bran's vision come more literally true. Like, not only is Theon and the Greyjoys the symbols of uh, the ocean, um, sort of seafaring people coming to Winterfell, but, like, to literally then have everybody get drenched. Yeah. And Theon as well sort of drowning himself uh, in the situation. But, eh, nice little symbol. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just thought it was a it was a really well-done opening. And, the, yeah, and, and that Alfie Allen's acting in particular was so good. It starts. I mean, the the opening is really like, is it in situ? Is that what you would say? Like we're we're in the moment mm-hmm. where like things are happening. Yeah. And we we didn't have a concept of exactly what Theon's plan was going to be last episode, and then to see like this frenzy right off the bat. You know, this wasn't a cold open, but it was pretty cold for an open that came after the credits. As far as like things are happening, we we haven't provided you with a context as to what's going mm-hmm. on here. Yeah. So we are taken by surprise like Bran and the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, speaking of cold, we could stay further north. Yeah. You have this great uh, like aerial like tracking shot through the Icelandic wilderness. It just felt like somebody was like on their way to a location and was like, hey, we should just film this because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's gorgeous. And it sort of you know gives a hint of the expanse of the landscape and just how far away from everything they are at the fist. They being John and the, the Night's Watch, and I guess at this point John is already heading out with Corin, and they're they're uh, on yeah. their way to find the Wildling camp, kill Man's Raider. Yeah, uh, I like Corin. Corin gives a couple of speeches that are really good. We're not fighting an enemy; we're fighting the North, and and he sort of rattles off these platitudes, and then mm-hmm. 
I, I, so he he calls John an idiot or something because mm-hmm. he he believes the things that the Night Watch tell them tell themselves. But I liked it because it's sort of breaking down of ideology mm-hmm. that you can see like maybe why John will end up being a good leader is because he's had his illusions broken. Yeah, that like we're doing this for a reason or like you know anyway. But um, I thought I thought that was interesting. He, he says you can't. He also says you can't know wild things, which they comment on. It's not like this open symbol where you'd be like. You know, well, he's going to get to know the wildlings, all this mm-hmm. thing. But it, it does directly parallel Egret's core phrase, you know nothing. And he's he's already been told, you can't know them. Right. And he's going to keep being told, you know nothing. Right, right. So, he's, he gets called uh, stupid a lot yeah. in, in, in those words or in other words. But... What does Corn say? You're dumber than you look or something <laughs> like that. And, he, and John has got his particularly floppy hair in this season, uh-huh. so he looks pretty dumb. He's so floppy. Uh, you were gonna, can we just talk about the chase scene though? Because yeah. uh, when that happens, when he's chasing Egret after the bot, the botched another beheading, mm-hmm. this one gone wrong, and I think the parallels there are very telling, right? Yeah. Between Theon, who is willing to go forward with this unjust beheading, and John, who is not willing to go forward with an unjust beheading, mm-hmm. and perhaps to his own peril, right? Yeah. And then he starts chasing Egret, and his like cape. Because he's got his full-on blacks this season. He's just got the widest cape, and he's just <laughs> flopping around. He's got these, like, big, clunky boots on. It's just like yeah. just like an elephant, like, stomping around, and he's just kind of waddles, around, you know, just because yeah. his, his cloak, like, shakes back and forth as he kind of moves around. But it's sort of effective because he's been told, and we get to see that, like, the Night's Watch, for as rugged as they seem, they are ill-suited for this. Mm-hmm. And that, that Egret is she's able to run more quickly and her clothes make more sense and mm-hmm. she's she's more compact. But yeah, that running it was <laughs> I don't know. It's not it's not bad and I really do believe that it must have been incredibly difficult to shoot. Mm-hmm. But it just it's not like they're running that fast. Yeah. I mean, I I'm sure all of us have run in snow boots. It's not very impressive. No. <laughs> it's not it's not dramatic or gallant or <laughs> Yeah, and it's also I don't know, the shots weren't wide enough for it to be impressive. But because it's so much snow, there's not enough going in, going mm-hmm. on in the shot, other than them just sort of running by. I don't know. It was, it was fine. It seemed to be a lot of that stuff seemed to be like, let's let's highlight the beautiful scenery and let's try to just make something work within like this amazing scene. Like we can't go too wrong, right? Yeah. Because it's always going to look pretty good. But I, they got some really nice close-ups. Egret does some fantastic like. Act, facial acting yeah. when she's first uh, revealed to like when the character is first revealed and sort of like this sort of bottled up sort of like rage and like agitation that's in her eyes but then also like annoyance that like Jon Snow like won't just like be the crow that she wants him to be yeah and, and then I think Jon counters with some good I mean maybe it's just the way that he looks but like his floppiness and his like his agitation his frustration and his he gets weary and it's pretty funny too yeah no and it it is funny because when he first discovers that she's this beautiful woman right he just can't stop staring at her mm. and then later when she's leaning into this and 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 bothering him with mm-hmm. it then so he's even more frustrated so there's like no there's no way that he can be happy with the situation even though he was the one who wouldn't kill her and she's yeah. screaming do it right mm-hmm. like she's she mm-hmm. i don't know so yeah he, just like floppy haired puppy di- dog eyed john <laughs> he's like such he's this the straight man here and everybody's just like having to go at him like 
Yeah. He's so easy to to rip on. Yeah, he has to take a lot of flack. Mm-hmm. So a uh, big change. We go down to King's Landing mm-hmm. where everyone is uh, saying farewell to Marcella. I think that scene does a really good job of building the tension because you, I don't think when you're watching it, it seems sad, mm-hmm. but I don't think you know right away no. that it's going to get dark. Like we sort of like the characters since we've been following them. We don't realize how bad things are outside the palace walls and we don't really think about the million people who live in this town besides like the Lannisters and Sansa. Yeah. Yeah. And also the way that this is set up is like Marcella's departure we have a little bit of a back and forth with Joffrey and Sansa, and then they're leaving. Oh, and, and Cersei threatens to mm. uh, hurt Tyrion whenever he loves someone. So, yeah, and so it feels like that would be like kind of the end of the scene, right? Okay, we've had this alter, we've had this interaction. Let's see these characters maybe in the Red Keep or mm. transition to somebody else. But the fact that we stay with them and it becomes this kind of like real time thing, I think that's part of what makes sort of that we're then dealing with sort of the, the, the quote-unquote real people of King's Landing, the, the common folk, mm-hmm. the, the small folk, I guess you would call them in, yeah. in Game of Thrones parlance, and then things operating in sort of like real time, and we're like on the ground, except for a couple of aerial shots that sort of maybe end up being a little ominous, like showing the royal column kind of coming through amidst like this massive crowd around them that's mm-hmm. you know could swarm them. I, I think it's telling also of that like, we were talking last episode when Joffrey was torturing Sansa in the throne room, this idea of like Sandra Clegane and all these other sort of soldiers and men with swords, letting it all happen. The power is where uh, we someone believes power to reside, as Varys was saying. And here is sort of the refutation, being like, we no longer believe, like, we yeah. have the power. We've got a lot more people than you. And so we're a lot more desperate. We're gonna. This is kind of like them, like testing the boundary, the the common people testing the boundaries of that power relationship, and being like, "What can we get away with here? Yeah. We get away with a lot." And they do, yeah, yeah. No, it's a. <laughs> I still am shocked, even though it's not the most shocking thing by far to ever happen in Game of Thrones. But where they take the High Septon and and rip his arm mm-hmm. off, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's like a, it's like a zombie, kind of horde. Yeah, death. it is like that. They, I mean, they the way they all like have their hands and they like pull them down together. Yeah, remind me a little of the, the scene with the frozen lake in the most recent season right. where they pulled that, that no name guy who did, was doing all the stunts in that episode, in and they sort of rip him apart. Those are actual zombies, but this is kind of a similar motion going on yeah and maybe maybe he'll get eaten because i think in the books they talk more about people going missing and ending up in soups right yeah there's all there's all kinds and more it's uh they you know they lose a member of the king's guard in the books Mm -hmm. um and lawless yeah she gets taken and does not get saved like sansa does yeah and yeah, it's it's. I didn't like take many screenshots. It's a lot of fast moving action. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to sort. You just kind of like sitting there soaking it all in as it's going. I, I feel like one of the big things of this was, of course, to show the 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 common folk sort of uh, rebelling and like reaching a boiling point, uh, especially with the the battle with Stannis imminent, mm-hmm. and sort of sort of paints that contrast there. Um, but this is largely about Sandor Clegane, I would I would have to say. Yes, and his his conscience or or whatever. The the first hint maybe we've had that he's not the worst guy we know. Yeah, 
He has a gruff personality. Sansa's been afraid of him the whole time. And he has also been standing by idly and doing nothing at various points in time. And But we get to see, like, a hint of chivalry here. Mm-hmm. A hint of, like, oh, maybe he has some amount of honor, but it's somehow getting repressed. Yeah. Like, maybe he's, because he's the hound, he's the dog. Joffrey refers to him as dog right before all of this happens sort of sets up the whole premise of like what he's expected to do and so he protects the king the king's back safe and he goes back into the fray yeah yeah no it's good i i really like the hound and so i i like to see him do sort of like begrudgingly chivalric things Mm -hmm. yeah and tywin or Tyrion, excuse me calls joffrey a vicious idiot king which is satisfying it's really good it's a really good scene he slaps him yeah. Um, he's, what's it like to say? And now I've struck a king. Did my hand fall, fall from my wrist? Yeah. Uh, the way he like spits those lines is like, sometimes the show, especially with Tyrion and uh, especially with uh, Peter Dinklage and uh, Lena Headey sometimes, it's just like, oh yeah, actors, like real <laughs> actors. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, it's, it's, so, it's so good. I yeah. It. No, that was, that was really excellent. And... So we know that things in King's Landing are not great. No. But maybe it's a good... And we'll see, we'll see this come sort of to fruition later, I guess, in a complicated way that, like, Tyrion's right about sending Marcella away. Mm-hmm. That there should have been some sort of shot where Cer- we see Cersei's face and that maybe she's relieved that Marcella is gone. But she, I don't know that she has enough... I don't know. Mm-hmm. She, enough self-doubt to believe that that could be true. Well, we could go to Harrenhal... Yeah, let's, we could do hair and all. There's kind of a continuation of some of the stuff from last episode. It's sort of like repeated, but with a slight variation. Littlefinger shows up. I think that's that's the main kind of different thing here as far as this episode goes. It's sort of Littlefinger, which advances the plot, sort of creates further suspicions. And what's Littlefinger up to? He seems like he's creating these alliances. Now Tywin might be involved. And, you know, I think this also sets us up to be like wonder... How early did the Red Wedding plan start? Yeah. You know, was it here? Is it this initial meeting here between Littlefinger and, and Tywin? It's un- unclear, but like perhaps. Maybe, yeah. And then uh, it, there's this, this kind of tense scene where like we're supposed to be paying attention to what Littlefinger and Tywin are saying as far as like the, the scheming goes. But like especially when I watched this the first time, I felt like, you're just mainly trying to be like, no, Arya, don't get found out. Littlefinger yeah. keeps having these glances where he like stares at her for like increasing amounts of time, and he's got this like thinking look on yeah. his face. Yeah, that like, maybe he recognizes maybe I her. Recognize you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, you know, that's that's the back and forth there. Yeah, and the again, it's just more sort of scenes between Charles Dance and Maisie Williams that are that are so great, and his affection for her, um, but also the way he underestimates her, which I think maybe shed some light on his relationship with Cersei. Mm-hmm. That like, oh, she's great, but like we don't have to worry about her motives. Yeah. And then there's a, it's actually a pretty funny sequence, I think, because so Arya steals a message from the table. Mm-hmm. She's going to read it. She gets caught by someone who who can't read, and so he doesn't know exactly what she's taken. Um, in order to keep herself from being found out, she runs to Jacken. And she's like, hurry, hurry, you have to do this. You have to kill him right now. And Jacken, I think making fun of the way that he speaks, he yeah. goes, ah, a girl has given a second name. And he's, he's speaking very slowly. Yeah. And he's like, I'll do a thing at some point. And she's like, no, it has to be now. And then and then we see Tywin and, he, and the door opens and the guy like is killed on a beat. Yeah. Like it, it happens just in the nick of time. That's a pretty funny sequence. It is. For I, a murder. I really love Jacken's line of being like, 
A girl cannot tell a man what to do with things. <laughs> yeah. But it's just funny because it just seemed to be poking fun at his delivery a little bit, which mm-hmm. is very slow mm-hmm. and uses sort of roundabout ways of talking about yeah. things. And so, Does not have abbreviations. <laughs> no, no. So that, and then... And then you th- you think that she's that she's been discovered and he, and then the I don't know he's some guy comes in <laughs> and he's got he's got a like a dart to the back of the neck. Yeah, I think that's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be Amory Lorch, who uh, plays a much bigger role in the books. But we did see he was part of the party that killed Yorin. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we would would have seen him before getting a little bit of revenge back for Arya here at the end. Yeah, but kind um, of a waste of if she had. I mean, yeah. Anyway, it's not for me. I to mean, judge. they do the. I mean, the whole point is that she kind of wastes her three kills in Heron Hall anyway. But like, uh, in the in the books, it is different people and for different reasons. But mm-hmm. it's the the end point is still more or less the same. Be like, right. oh, I I could have had him kill Tywin, right? Or Joffrey, yeah. Or Cersei, <laughs> right? Or anybody like actually important that's just not about like the way things are in Heron Hall, right? Oh well. Oh well. And we're back in Rob's camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get to see Rob again. We get to see him uh, flirting more with Talisa again, developing a romantic story arc here. Yeah, actually filming it. Yeah. So there you go. Right, <laughs> setting setting the scene for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting. So when Catelyn comes home, and uh, they're starting, they're sort of re-greeting each other. Bruce Bolton comes in and separates them in the mm. scene. I'm sure you, you, maybe you took a shot, but so you've got, they were speaking and then Bruce Bolton comes in between them and is, and is also the one who gives them the news that Winterfell has been taken. And he says, never trust a Greyjoy. Oh, or maybe Catelyn says that anyway, it's sort of, it will be more ironic if it's Bruce who says it because also don't trust a Bolton. I don't know that he says never trust a Greyjoy. He's, he's, he definitely slurs them in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't, remember what exactly for if he says that one or calls them sons of i don't know something yeah <laughs> yeah and then offers uh his son ramsey to go take care of it yeah but i feel like the the shot of this scene is really catlin giving the look at rob when rob yeah. is staring at talisa because they hang on it for like a good like three seconds of her just like giving this knowing like side eye like I see what you're doing. <laughs> I see what you're looking at, Rob. And she even says, I, I'm sorry, I wish you were free to yeah. marry, but you're promised. And he's like, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know, Mom. <laughs> like an Leave idiot. alone. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I know, at least in the first season, I had a segment that I called like Idiot Catlin or uh-huh. something. But here she's giving good advice, yeah. and it has to become Idiot Rob, because <laughs> he knows, and he knows that his mom sees and understands the situation, and he still disregards it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've got an uncomfortable scene between Osha and Theon. Yeah. I don't have anything to say about that. Yeah, I don't have any. I didn't actually have anything about that scene nope. either. Nope. Other than it transitions to Sansa, who is having her wounds cleaned out by Shay. And we see this reversal of their relationship from what it was previously, where it seems like some time has passed and she's come to really trust Shay to the point where she's willing to say all kinds of stuff in front of her. And Shay even says, mm-hmm. don't trust anybody. Life is safer that way. Again, making Shay... Shay's a character I have a lot of problems with for many reasons. Mm-hmm. But also because I don't know that you can ever... I don't know that it's ever clear what her motivation is. Because yeah. she can say something like that, but then she gets very... Hurt seemingly, and and feels like she can make a lot of demands on Tyrion, even when he's just trying to keep her safe. Right. So I don't I don't know what that 
means other than maybe Sansa just needs to hear it. Like yeah. maybe they just need someone to tell Sansa don't trust anyone. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't, I've never been able to figure Shay out and I don't care to. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought that was a little slightly out of character her for her as well. If it's supposed to be a relationship where Shay is starting to sort of feel uh, protective of Sansa, then we haven't seen any like evidence of that up, up till this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we, in fact, have every reason to believe that she should kind of not really care for Sansa, this like stuck-up girl, or resent her. And yeah. also, especially because in that scene, she also talks about how that the small folk have good reason to hate her mm-hmm. and and the other people she was with. That she said, "Your horse eats better than his children," mm-hmm. and so. Which is also weird to say to someone who was just had an attempted gang rape. Right. But yeah, so if 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 Shay is trying to help Sansa understand why the lower class might not like her, it makes sense that Shay might also have some of those same resentments. I don't mm-hmm. know. It was it's an odd scene. Yeah, I think it it makes sense as something to like for the arc of the episode in terms of like having some of these noble people see what how the other their nobility has wrought, yeah. right? But. As far as the the details of like who's saying that and in what context, yeah, yeah, a little weird. It might have made more sense, even if Tyrion had said it, mm-hmm. um, or certainly Littlefinger, but he wasn't around. Right. So we've got Daenerys. Yeah. Left, and she has the scene where she propositions who we know now as the Spice King, mm-hmm. Spice Lord, mm-hmm. um, who is wearing the same thing as last time with the weird kind of little bugs, dragonflies, whatever they are on his shirt, but. Uh, I I liked the part that I liked about this is how he like comes down the stairs and he's got his whole like posse yeah. with him and they all like come down the stairs after him. It's a little like Von Trapp family thing <laughs> going on here, and then it's that it's maybe a little obvious, but the whole thing is about the power dynamics here between the two. He's up on top of the stairs, she's down low, and she's sort of more or less like taking on the role of Viserys here the, as the beggar queen or the right. beggar king. Right, wearing she's wearing a very strange outfit. It's, it's weird. I don't it's, know. What it's I got a sort of a, like a metal lattice harness. That the thing that is especially weird. It feels like maybe it meant to have another piece. She's got some sort of breastplate, and it's mm-hmm. got a, a hook, but there's nothing on the hook, and it doesn't seem to serve any purpose. So maybe they were supposed to. Maybe it was supposed to have more fabric that like attached or hung from it. But it, it looks very strange and like it would catch on everything. It's a weird. It's a weird outfit. I think it's it's yeah. It's definitely. I did not remember this one. It's it is a strange garment. Yeah. There's like too many layers going on in it because she's got this kind of like tunicky like, but it, I don't know. Yeah, but I'm starting to, I'm starting to feel that the weirdness of Karth is all on purpose. Hmm. Um, that it's a little bit like. Alice in Wonderland or or a sort of dream space that like no one knows what they seem it's mm-hmm. all really what's the okay have you have you read Gulliver's Travels I mean no I actually haven't okay. but I know the, the premise they're the, Lilli, they're the Lilliputians <laughs> yeah. I think that they're like this very like they've got a lot of courtly rules and all of the everyone's effort is like based on like the, the outside of things and their dress and mm-hmm. it just but it's all there's nothing underneath. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a very surface, stuffy, static society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I don't like Karth, but I'm starting to believe that the weirdness is, is to show that, like, it's hollow. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think they they end up... To go along with that, though, I think the symbolism becomes quite literal later with the safe. We, do, we are introduced to the vault here, which apparently this was actually last episode 
where we have introduced the concept of Valyrian stone, which I don't Sounds think fake. is... Sounds fake. Sounds fake. Yeah, you know what? He probably just made it up. Yeah. Right? It's probably not actually anything Valyrian stone. It's just like, oh, well, I guess there's steel. Maybe there could be stone too. Yeah. Mm. Well, and, and he, he brings up a wife that he married for love. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably not true. He also... Before they go and discover everyone has, that's associated with her household has been killed and her dragons are missing, he says, I've done things a righteous man would condemn, but I have no regrets. Mm-hmm. And then, and we know, we'll find out later that he, ha- he has set all of this up. Yeah. And that, yeah, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm starting to like the choices that are so bonkers for Karth because I think it's, it's giving us a hint that like, this is, things are not what they seem. Yeah. Well, in the way this episode ends, which is this, like, slaughter of Daenerys' household, like, this is very different from what happens in the books. Yes. <laughs> um, in the books, she ends, because she's going to end up going to the House of the Undying, which is where the dragons have been taken. We see this, like, uh, ominous tower at the end of the episode, and s- some hooded figure who seems like could very well be affiliated with Pyat Pri and mm-hmm. the sorcerers. And she go- more or less goes to... The House of the Undying voluntarily yeah. in the books. There's never the slaughter. There's there's never any of these kind of altercations, and she kind of comes to these conclusions on her own volition, more or less. Whereas this one is definitely like the plot has been spurred in a way to be like, okay, there's tension. There is sort of something happening in Karth to sort of drive things forward, other than kind of curiosity and long form kind of like let's set up a bunch of things of prophecy here that then will pique readers' interest and will be, you know, revisited several books down the line. Right. It's, it's definitely like, Karth is not my favorite storytelling, it's, but it's definitely like playing the long game in the books and in the show, you know, it, it feels a little bit more like a, a stopgap. Yeah, I mean, they do they do some of the prophecy, but with having uh, Quaith with a reduced role mm-hmm. and some of the other things. And prophecy, the whole, all the prophecy has more reduced role in the yeah. show, which makes sense. True. But yeah, the Karth stuff is is not weird. But at least I have the feeling now that some of these weird choices are intentional, mm-hmm. I think. I can, I can get on board with some of that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, that's that's where we end with the, the dragons getting stolen. It's kind of a cliffhanger yeah. ending. And with Amelia Clark's, I think, now famous delivery where are my dragons? <laughs> I can't even. I can't even do it because it's, it's a, it's a little hokey, <laughs> but, but I think she has improved as an actress. Yeah, you know, I, and I think she, they really made her work this episode actually when she does that, um, the, the pleading mm-hmm. to the Spice King and she has to give this whole story. It's like, I forgot how like long that goes on. Like she yeah. really, I think they made her. I think they gave her maybe a few too many like lines in that. It's like yeah. the emotion was like there was one emotion happening and it had to be sustained, I think, a little too long. Yeah. But it was okay. It was okay, though. It wasn't bad. It was just, eh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Stretched a little thin. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to a conclusion for our two episodes here. Um, next time, we're going to have episodes seven and eight. David Nutter will be returning and... Our old favorite, Alan Taylor, will be back once again for episode eight. Okay. Uh, the Prince of Winterfell. And so, yeah, I guess just to wrap up things here, once again, you can always email our podcast. We will someday, I'm sure, read an email on the air and answer it. Uh, it's themummersfarsepodcast at gmail.com. Find all of our podcasts on themummersfarse.libson.com. Uh, we're on iTunes, Google Play, and presumably other podcast places. Um, 
And you can follow us on Twitter at the Mummers Farce Pod. Uh, sorry, at Mummers Farce Pod. No the. <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess that's it for uh, for this episode. All right. Have a good week, Dan. Yep. See you next time. Bye.